You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to yet another episode of The Natural Philosopher, with me, Dr Mick Pope. In this episode, I want to take you through the latest IPCC report. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recently released the uh, report of Working Group 1, which focuses on the science. And I have it here on my laptop. You'll hear me tapping about. So Climate Change 2021, the Physical Science Basis Summary for Policymakers is what I'm going to take you through. Now, the reason I'm going to do that, because, of course, the Summary for Policymakers is precisely that. It's designed for policymakers, for politicians, for the curious uh, individual with a little bit of science behind them, perhaps. They're pretty easy to read documents, although they're quite long. Uh, And if 42 pages is too long for you, then the Climate Council here in Australia will no doubt, either if it's already have, and I haven't checked yet, will release something that's even more digestible. But I want to take you through it it's, uh, it causes me to uh, reflect a little bit. Uh, I've been writing and thinking and speaking about climate change from a Christian perspective for about two decades. And I can remember, it must have been about 2002, and I would have been reading the second assessment report of the IPCC and then waiting you know, eagerly on uh, the third assessment report and, and then so on and so forth. And they come out every six years, and they are an amazing document. And there's three of them, there's three working groups. The reports are huge. And they have these, these you know, these uh, really helpful summaries. And you think about it, it's, it's an enormous amount of work. There's literally thousands of scientific papers with, you know, many, many scientific contributors putting into those uh, those pieces of research and then you get uh, lead authors and contributing authors who summarize all of this and try and have the broadest possible coverage of the peer-reviewed signs and it's a, it's a pretty broad selection of names if I just go to the start of the um, the summary for policymakers and see the drafting authors of that from Colombia, France, Sweden, Italy, the Philippines, Senegal, Spain, Canada, the UK, Norway, Belgium, Switzerland, Australia. Um, there's a lot of India. There's a lot of countries represented and a lot of scholars. And I know two of the people. And in the past, I've known others uh, as contributing authors. And I remember being at a conference on education in uh, weather, oceanography and climate cheekily known as Ewok, and it would have been in the late 90s, and Sir John Horton was there, who was a, a, a very strong Christian man and a head of the IPCC. 
So I think it's rather unusual and unique in a sense that there'd be such a document produced so regularly. Six years is a long time, but given the, the whole swathe of material that's covered, it's, it's a huge endeavour. And so you get a consensus document that's in one sense conservative because it has to draw the consensus of the literature and focuses on the things that we understand the best, but tries to communicate the uncertainties involved. And it's worth noting, although I've but no doubt in the UN there are people who are paid to help put this together, that all the contributing authors have their own jobs. Uh, and they do this because they want to and contribute to the science because they want to be, I guess, be able to say to the world and to the policymakers and the politicians this is important. One of the things that, that's in these is kind of an opening, opening statement, and I've given talks where I've shown the opening statement, the summary statement for over, say, three IPCCs, and what you see is an ever-increasing level of confidence. So if we go straight to, and I've, I've gone through and I've used the highlighter and the PDF, so I'm just going to try and pick the things out. Uh, just before I do that, there's four sections in the summary for policymakers, there's the current state of the climate, there's possible future climates, uh, there's climate information for risk assessment and regional adaptation, so boring down to the, you know, the local scale, and then there's comments on limiting future climate change, and I'll try and touch upon all of those, probably mostly A, B, and D, as it were. But <clears throat> the uh, the opening statement under the current climate reads as the following. Since AR5, which is the fifth assessment report six years ago, improvements in observationally-based estimates and information from paleoclimate archives provide a comprehensive view of each component of the climate system and its changes to date. New climate model simulations, new analyses and methods combining multiple lines of evidence lead to improved understanding of human influences on a wider range of climate variables, including weather and climate extremes. The time periods considered throughout this section depend upon the availability of observational products, paleoclimate archives, and peer-reviewed studies. Let me give you an illustration. It's a bit ridiculous, but you please run with it. <clears throat> Imagine that you um, are going skydiving. Now, I don't know why you'd throw yourself out of a perfectly good plane, but some people enjoy those kind of extreme sports. And you're going with a bunch of your friends of mixed political views and understandings and religious backgrounds and all sorts of stuff, right? Now you encounter turbulence and you're, the door flies open and you're all thrown out of the aircraft. But you have your parachutes on. So straight away someone says, oh, I think we should pull the parachutes. And there's somebody and maybe they're under the influence of something, who knows what, but they say, hang on, we're still in the aircraft. What are you worried about? It's not time to jump yet. And there are others who say, well, yeah, I know that we're out of the aircraft, but we've got plenty of time to pull the ripcord and deploy a parachute. Uh, and you, you start falling and someone has some equipment. <laughs> they're a science geek. And they're able to say, well, I think we're so-and-so thousands of feet above the surface now and we're falling at this velocity. And then they tell the group again, we should pull the ripcord now because we're only so many thousands of feet above the surface and this will slow our descent. And people argue about the existence of parachutes and whether or not they're really falling. Uh, and, and all manner of silliness. And each time the person with the instrumentation speaks, they say, well, we know at this point now, if we pull our parachutes, we'll only break our ankles. Uh, if we leave it till too much later, we might break our legs and be in traction for months on end. 
Oh, hang on. It's too late. So what I think is that the sixth assessment report doesn't tell us anything new insofar as A, the climate is warming, B, human beings are doing it, and C, if we don't do anything about it, it will be bad. And by bad, I mean end of civilization type bad. So the report says that it's unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean and land, and widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere, which is the, uh, the solid ice and biosphere have occurred. And there's lots of um, references to the report and so on. And so there's, there's various ways of qualifying this. So the atmosphere, of course, is the air we breathe and it contains the greenhouse gases and it warms in response to emissions of those. The ocean warms in response to that heating of the atmosphere and so does the land surface. Heating in the ocean does all sorts of things like um, making it more stable and reducing the mixing of oxygen-rich waters deeper down. Uh, and a lack of oxygen in below the surface means that sea life uh, struggles. And there's also things like carbon dioxide being added to the ocean waters, making it more acidic and making life more difficult for coral reefs and shell-building creatures. The cryosphere, the frozen water, is significant because ice uh, packs provide summer meltwater in many countries. That the ice is highly reflective, and the less ice you have, the warmer the planet is because you're absorbing more of the sunlight, you reflect it back. And the biosphere, of course, is life, uh, which we understand as precious and we want to protect, not just human life, but the life of every living creature. Observed increases in well-mixed greenhouse gas concentrations since around 1750 are unequivocally caused by human activities. So we know uh, that we in, we've hit over 410 parts per million of carbon dioxide, uh, 1866 parts per billion of methane, and 332 parts per billion for nitrous oxide. This is in 2019. Uh, now these numbers might seem small, but the whole thing about a trace gas is that it can exist in small amounts but have a large impact in terms, in this case, of the radiation budget of the Earth. More heat being absorbed now um, and not re-emitted into space than was before, hence warming the planet. And it's uh, unequivocally caused by human activities, by burning fossil fuels, by clearing land, by making cement, um, being the chief activities. And this has resulted in, in each of the last four decades being successively warmer than any decade that's preceded it since 1850. So since the start of the Industrial Revolution, where we really kicked off uh, burning fossil fuels, the global surface temperature is about 1.09 degrees warmer. Uh, with a, It's larger over land, it's 1.59 or 1.6 degrees and about 0.88 or 0.9 to round off over the oceans. The oceans being much faster, much more dense, so they can absorb more heat and the temperature changes more slowly. Um, the thing about this report is they give um, probabilities, and these are worked out in a way that's not entirely obvious to me, but it's an expert assessment, I think, is the way that it runs. And people quibble about this a little bit, but nonetheless, um, unequivocal means it's definitely happening. Um, Things like human influence is very likely the main driver of the global retreat of glaciers since the 1990s and the decrease in Arctic sheet ice between 1979-1988 and 2010-2019. to 2019. Um, 
So, you know, there's, there's these severe impacts, uh, but then things like globally average precipitation over land has likely increased since 1950. So the confidence isn't quite there, or the agreement isn't quite there. And that's a product of um, that a warm atmosphere drives stronger evaporation. So the atmosphere, quote unquote, holds more moisture. So when it rains, it can rain much heavier, even if the total rainfall over the year has declined and also disruptions to the circulation, the atmosphere circulation that produces the rain uh, can be quite significant. So for example, the Indian monsoon has become more irregular, but it can also result in very heavy rainfall. And you can see the problems that presents for agriculture and for drinking water supply and so on. Uh, it's virtually certain that the ocean, the global upper ocean, the, the top 700 metres, has warmed since the 1970s and extremely likely that human influence is the main driver. So the observations are pretty clear. Um, there's very little denial of that and it mo it's most, almost certainly uh, extremely likely that human beings have driven that through carbon dioxide emissions which also make the ocean more acidic and that's really problematic. It's also uh, that human influence is very likely to be the main driver of sea level rise, which threatens Pacific Island nations. And indeed will impact most of us because there are millions of people who live within one metre of sea level rise. And it's projected by end of century, uh, under some scenarios at least, that sea level will rise by one metre. But that of course involves various uncertainties in how ice sheets will behave. There's a couple of nice plots in the figure that show not only is the warming unprecedented, in more than 2,000 years through reconstructions both through observed temperatures but also tree rings and uh, boreholes in the ground and coral rings etc uh, but also you can go back 100,000 years or indeed more and that it's the warmest multi-century period in that time and that goes to ice cores and so on the other thing and there's always a figure like this in the IPCC reports and it's worth repeating that when people say oh a, a weather agency doesn't get the, the weather forecast right, how can you expect it to get climate projections right? They're only models. You can say three things. The first is that uh, weather forecasting over a period of up to two weeks has improved greatly with the advance in computer technologies, large supercomputers and more sophisticated models. And weather agencies get weather forecasts right far more often than they get it wrong. It's just that Sometimes when there's a big weather event, uh, there's greater uncertainty. And people only remember the times when a weather agency gets it wrong. But secondly, a climate projection is a statement about um, the average climate. It's not the temperature on a given day. So there's, I guess, greater latitude in terms of the variability that encapsulates. Are you just interested in, say, uh, the annual average temperature for the globe or for a location? But the other figure that's included is that if you model the climate over the 20th century and only include a natural variability in the sun's output, like sunspots, and the impact of volcanoes, you do not match the observed trend. When you include greenhouse gases into that model, you will capture very nicely what happens in the real atmosphere. So the essence of the first part is that human beings are responsible, and when you break uh, the warming in the 20th century up and into the 21st century, you can see the greatest impact is well-mixed greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane and so on. Um, there's some cooling due to some of the pollutants we emit into the atmosphere. And the impacts of 
internal variability in the Earth's system and solar and volcanic drivers is small compared to what human beings are doing. So we are now, as the term Anthropocene implies, a major geological force. In the second half of the program, I'll go through some of the other sections of this report. Well, welcome back from that lovely piece of Vivaldi. We're going through the IPCC summary for policymakers, just picking out some of the highlights. And we've been talking about the fact that these huge reports, which summarize a lot of science, are producing a consensus that human beings are warming the planet. And we've been looking at some of the evidence for that. In 2019, Atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations were higher than at any time in at least the last two million years. And methane and nitrous oxide were higher at any than any other time in the last 800,000 years. That's an awfully long period of time. That's involving some complex chemistry and some um, ice cores and, and other proxies. And that's with high confidence. So, and very high confidence for the methane. So there's a lot of science and a lot of um, scientists having tried to calibrate these methods properly to go back as far as we can. So it's a truism that the climate has always changed, but given we can make these statements that uh, concentrations of greenhouse gases that warm the planet are higher than they've been for an, a geological time period, just happens to be about the time that human beings have been burning fossil fuels and clearing forests and so on. Kind of makes sense, does it not? Uh, we've talked about global surface temperatures. Um, global mean sea level has risen faster since 1900 than any preceding century in at least the last 3,000 years. So again, that's a big consequence of climate change. Uh, Human-induced climate change is already affecting many weather and climate extremes in every region around the globe. Evidence of observed changes in extremes, such as heat waves, heavy precipitation, droughts, and tropical cyclones, and in particular their attribution to human influences, has strengthened since the last report. So it's virtually certain, for example, that hot extremes, including heat waves, have become more frequent and more intense across land regions since the 1950s. And also marine heat waves have doubled in frequency since the 1980s. So one of the things you need to remember is that when we talk about the planet warming by one or two or three degrees, temperatures are always a distribution. And so when Senator Inhofe in the United States carried, um, he didn't carry a... a um, a, uh, what do you call them? A snowball. But he, he talked about the snow event. I think he held one in his hand, took a photo and said, oh, look, snow, therefore no climate change. Which is silly, of course, because you have natural variability, so cold days and warm days, and then you have climate change on top of that. And the, a small shift in an average temperature means a change in the probabilities. And one of the things that the report talks about is the fact that there's an increase in... Uh, heat waves and a decrease in cold what they call cold waves which is kind of funny so there's a figure here for example uh, which is a synthesis 
of assessment of observed changes in hot extremes and confidence in human contribution to the observed changes in the world's regions. And Australia, Australia, for example, they've got three dots for the entire of the country, and it's in red, which means it's a high confidence in human contribution to the observed change. Whereas over New Zealand, it's um, low uh, due to limited agreement. In the Pacific Island nations, it's medium. So it varies, but most of the globe, most of the figure I can see, the scientific consensus is that it's a high confidence that human beings have contributed to hot extremes. And so we'll get back to the, the kind of return uh, period of those in a little bit, but hot extremes give you fire weather, like the fire weather season in Australia from 2019 to 2020. Uh, hot extremes give you the kind of fires that have ripped through California that are going through, what, Greece and... Um, other parts of Europe right now. And of course, in these events, it's always the heat waves that kill more people than the fires, as tragic as the fires are. So you think about the tens of thousands of people that died during the 2003 European heat wave. And these events are becoming uh, more common. Looking at the figure for the observed changes in heavy precipitation, the confidence is typically much lower at this point in time. And you can look at all these sorts of things. And then there's a figure that looks at agricultural and ecological drought. And the there's a lack of limited agreement, except in some places like the Mediterranean, where there's a medium agreement. So the science is still developing and things are still unfolding. But when do you pull the parachute? To go back to my earlier illustration. So just moving right along. One of the things now they've worked out is uh, the sensitivity, the equilibrium climate sensitivity keeps changing, which is how much warmer will the climate be if we double um, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere above pre-industrial? It's now at three degrees of warming, which, you know, if we're seeing all these impacts now at one degree, think about what a three degree world is like. Um, you just It's not something you want to dice with at all. And that's always the thing that's worth thinking about, is that climate change is here, climate change is now. Climate change could kill me, not just about the future generations, uh, as much as their world is, is violently truncated, but it's killing people now, it's causing people great um, economic hardship and personal hardship right now. I'm going to try and skip through, there's, there's so much detail in here, and go to possible future climates, that's part B. So what the IPCC has done is it runs on a bunch of scenarios that describe the cumulative emissions of carbon dioxide. And they run from SP, uh, SSP 1.9, 2.6, 4.5, 7.0 and 8.5. And that refers to the what we call the radiative forcing in watts per meter squared by end of century. Think of it, those old bar heaters. The more uh, bars of the heater that are on, the more watts it's putting out. Now, 1.9 and 2.6 are the ones where we get below thresholds of, I think, one and a half or two degrees, in essence. And they require us to be reducing our carbon emissions right now. And that, of course, isn't happening. <clears throat> you know, uh, you hear rhetoric. Uh, so Joe Biden was elected on a political platform, amongst other things, of doing things about um, carbon emissions. But apparently he's given uh, permission for 2,000... Uh, fossil fuel exploration sites across the United States. Uh, in our country, our Prime Minister said something about no blank checks for acting on this. Uh, and yet, I look at the science and I think it's requiring urgent action. We're falling, we need to pull the parachute. 
and so you can compare all these scenarios I mean, SP 8.5 in fact let me go to the table if I can find it now just a little bit further down okay so there's a near term a midterm and a long term uh, global mean average temperature so 1.9 is 1.4 degrees warming by the last two decades of century 2.6 is 1.8 these are the best estimates and they've got ranges 4.5 is 2.7, 7.0 is 3.6, and 8.5 is sheer apocalypse at 4.4. And it's understood that none of these things really includes the feedbacks of melting permafrost over Siberia, which release a lot of methane and really drive climate. So given that there are, there are still those uncertainties in, in modelling, why would you not aim for lowest as possible? Well, economics, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, but we've seen that the numbers don't really lie. And each time a new assessment report comes out, as I said, we're closer to hitting the ground. So if you wanted to make under 2 or under 1.5, which remember was proposed by Pacific Island nations to save their very existence, uh, then we need to be really reducing our emissions now. And I'll talk more a little bit about that towards the end. But... Um, Here's a sentence. Global surface temperature will continue to increase until at least the mid-century under all emission scenarios considered. Global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius and 2 degrees Celsius will be exceeded during the 21st century unless deep reductions in carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions occur in the coming decades. We need to get cracking now. It simply screams stop burning fossil fuels, stop extracting fossil fuels, um, make modifications to diet, Maybe that's no meat. Maybe regenerative agriculture has a point. Uh, yeah, air transport's going to have to make a huge shift. But when you come to discuss how you address these things, they talk about wedges. So why not tackle the easy wedges first, the things that are, are quote-unquote relatively easy to change, and give them the maturity of, of uh, wind power and solar and batteries geothermal in some parts of the world why aren't we shifting our stationary electricity generation to renewables right now um, yes there are lots of answers to that question but the science begs the question of why it's not the case okay uh, here's a lovely sentence the last time global surface temperature was sustained at or above 2.5 degrees celsius higher than 1850 to 1900 was over 3 billion years ago so the second lowest, uh, most conservative scenario is that table again. And just nail that. Okay, 2.5 is about uh, the uh, scenario 4.5 watts per meter squared by end of century, and that's at 2.7. Uh, so between the, the, the second and third lowest scenarios, that's 3 million years ago, the last time the Earth looked like that. 3 million years ago. Uh, the time scales involved we need to jump on this now okay and natural variability could take us above 1.5 or 2 degrees celsius relative to 1850 to 1900 which won't necessarily imply that global warming has reached that level but it could kick off feedback mechanisms uh, tipping points in the earth system and you've probably heard me talk about this before um I'm going to just jump and try and find a figure now that I find quite uh, disturbing. Let's take um, a measure of extremes now. And I've talked about before earlier in the program about 
a small shift in average temperature can change the probability distribution function, to use the fancy term, or the bell curve, to increase the hot events and decrease the cold events. There's a lovely figure here that says a 1 in 50 year event uh, in the period 1815 to 1900 is 4.8 times more likely to occur in the present, where we've got about 1 degree Celsius of warming above that pre-industrial level. For a 1.5 degrees warming, so that's looking into the future, it's 8.6 times more likely to occur. 2 degrees, 13.9, basically 14. And 4 degrees Celsius, 39.2 times. So if by the end of century we just didn't do anything and let the world warm on average by 4 degrees, uh, extreme events that were 1 in 50 year events would be now 39, basically 40 in 50 years. 8 of every 10 years would be what was considered extreme at the start of the Industrial Revolution. Extreme fire weather when the stuff to burn, extreme heat waves, killing people, stressing electricity generation. And note that uh, given electricity generation involves the use of steam and, and water coolants and all this kind of stuff, that coal fire power stations don't perform well in hot events. So that's just one of those kind of uh, figures that we could go to. Um, what else can we find here? Continued global warming is projected to further intensify the global water cycle, including its variability, global monsoon precipitation, and the severity of wet and dry events. So floods and droughts. Uh, and you, if you've got a flood, you can't bottle it for, for drought-type events. Let me jump forward to part D, because it makes some comments about uh, what we should be doing. So I'm skipping part C, which is all about, uh, you know, policymakers are really interested in the local scale, and there's a lot more of that happened and, and going to happen. So limiting future climate change. Uh, since AR5, the fifth assessment report, estimates of remaining carbon budgets have been improved by a new methodology first presented um, in a special report. 1.5 updated evidence and the integration of results from multiple lines of evidence. A comprehensive range of possible future air pollution controls in scenarios is used to consistently assess the effects of various assumptions on projections of climate and air pollution. A novel development is the ability to ascertain when climate responses to emission reductions would become discernible above natural climate variability, including internal variability and responses to natural drivers. So, from a physical science perspective, limiting human-induced global warming to a specific level requires limiting cumulative carbon dioxide emissions, reaching at least net zero carbon dioxide emissions, along with strong reductions in other greenhouse gases. Strong, rapid and sustained reductions in methane emissions would also limit the warming effect resulting from declining aerosol pollution and would improve air quality. So the more you make uh, industrial emissions cleaner, the less of those aerosols are in the atmosphere to reflect sunlight. But if you hit methane, you'll offset that. Now methane is short-lived greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. It comes from industrial emissions. It comes from leakages in extracting um, natural gas. Natural gas is burned, flared in the extraction of uh, petroleum, or well, crude oil, which becomes petroleum. And it's produced by rice, wet rice paddies and sheep and cattle. So the numerous ways in which you could hit that would help reduce that. But engaging in more and more fracking 
puts uh, at risk of greater methane emissions. So it seems crazy to engage in natural gas when we need to cut those the, the short-term effects of very powerful greenhouse gases. And, and note that methane decays to carbon dioxide, so it's still making a contribution, right? The fact that it's limiting cumulative CO2 emissions means that the earlier you go hard, the less you have to rely upon extraction technologies to remove the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Now, they've discovered that there's a near linear, well, it's a fact that there's a near linear relationship between cumulative anthropogenic CO2 emissions and the global warming they cause. Each thousand gigatons of carbon dioxide of cumulative CO2 emissions is assessed to likely cause a 0.27 to 0.63 increase in global surface temperature with a best estimate of 0.45 degrees Celsius. So cut your carbs, cut the carbon dioxide. What else is there? Uh, just quickly, uh, and a bit later on, they talk about anthropogenic carbon dioxide removal has the potential to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and durably store it in reservoirs with high confidence. CDA methods can have potentially wide-ranging effects on biogeochemical cycles and climate, which can either weaken or strengthen the potential of these methods to remove carbon dioxide and reduce warming. So it seems to me that we will be reliant upon technological fixes to help in the longer term, but there are different ways of doing this, and reforestation is one. There are techniques we want to avoid, like the plague, because they make a mess of the planet. But we are going to have to rely upon basically uh, lifestyle changes and technological changes and a renewed vision of, I think, giving the Earth Sabbath rest. But the IPCC report is a central reading or a summary thereof. It screams that we need to act, we need to act quickly, and we need to act in various and many different ways. Um, so be a scientifically informed Christian, if that's what you are. And if you're not a Christian, be scientifically informed uh, and be encouraged that there are some of us who believe in something that, you know, you might think is a little bit crazy, uh, but that central message of love of God and love of neighbor drives us to do the things that we do, including run this podcast, which you've listened to, for which I'm terribly grateful. So thank you and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.